Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at the first eight verses of Paul's letter to the church of Colossae this evening. Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Father, how we do pray as we come to your word here this evening that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things in it and that you would produce in us by the preaching of your word these things which Paul was so thankful to find in the Colossians that our lives would be marked by faith, love, and hope. We recognize, Lord, our inability to produce these things in ourselves. We look to you, O Lord to produce these things in us by the preaching of your words to the praise of your glorious grace. For we ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in the evening services lately, we've been going through the book of Micah. We finished that a a few weeks ago. And now here in the the evening services, we will begin to go through uh, Paul's letter to the church uh, in Colossae, to the letter to the Colossians. A couple of words about the book as a whole before we get started. Uh, today, it's very common for people to try to deny that Paul was the author. Uh, there's really no reason to deny the authorship of Paul. Um, Paul is mentioned in the greeting. And uh, in, in fact, uh, before you know, like 150 to 200 years ago, uh, Paul's authorship was never questioned. And even though it says uh, Timothy in verse 1 as well, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, there's a number of first-person singular references. Paul speaks of I, me, that sort of thing throughout the letter, and it's very clearly talking about Paul's circumstances. So it's very likely that Timothy um, simply was recording the words that Paul wrote um, or something like that. So this is Paul's letter, and it was written to the church in Colossae. And as we begin, I don't want to deal with too many introductory matters, but it is a good, good question to ask. Why is it that Paul wrote this particular letter? 
There are a number of reasons why he wrote the various letters that, that he, he did write to the various churches very often, but though not always, he was addressing a particular problem within that church. And for the church at Colossae, the main issue that he is seeking to address is some sort of heresy, which which the church had felt some pressure to cave into. We have it referenced a number of places throughout the letter, particularly in chapter 2, where there was some sort of pressure for uh, the church to to give in on various things. Uh, there's been a number of things written about trying to identify what was the actual heresy, um, which Paul was writing against. And there's a number of things that we can say about the heresy, and we'll come to them more as we work through um, Paul's letter. But um, probably the most instructive thing to keep in mind this evening as we begin to look at the actual letter is one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to to reconstruct what the heresy was is that Paul doesn't really deal with the specifics of the heresy. He deals with um, sort of vague general statements about what was being taught. But the main way that the Apostle Paul combats this heresy, which was plaguing the church at Colossae, was not so much to argue against it, but to set forth the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to point the Colossians to the true glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to show, to show them that, you know, anything that's going to detract from this doctrine of Christ is insufficient. And that's why we don't really get a lot of details about the heresy. But because the Apostle Paul chooses to deal with this particular issue in this way with the Church of Colossae, we recognize that, that the way that he deals with it is actually very instructive for us. We may not be going through the exact same thing that the Colossian church is going through. There may not be the exact same pressures on us to cave in in exactly the same ways. But Paul didn't give a very detailed uh, refutation of a very specific error. He rather gave the solution to all heresies in one letter. He does apply it to the particular error of the that is plaguing the Colossian church. But he gives us a solution that can be fitted to any problem that we face in the church, any kind of pressure that we face in the church in our day. And that is to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to simply recognize that anything that would detract from that glory must be an error. We recognize that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And when we recognize that, when we see the true glory of Christ, we're really enabled to stand firm against any number of false teachings. And so that's the way that Paul Paul uh, deals with this particular uh, problem that is, that's uh, plaguing the Colossians. Now, as he begins this letter, he does so with a very standard greeting in the first couple of verses. And then he does something as well in verses 3 through 8, which is what we're going to look at um, here this evening. And even really even beyond to about verse 24, does something very common that he does in his letters, which is he gives a thanksgiving to God for the church which he is writing to. And he offers up a prayer on their behalf. We're going to be looking particularly this evening at the thanksgiving which Paul gives uh, to God uh, on behalf of the Colossians. And he continues his prayer, as I said, moving um, verse 9 and onwards into the latter part of chapter 1. And so as we think about Paul opening this letter and the thanksgiving that he gives to God for the Colossians, um, it's fitting for us to think, when was the last time that you 
looked at the life of another Christian, saw that God was producing fruit in them, and it caused you to praise and worship God for the work that you saw in their lives. You see, when Paul thinks of the Colossians, this is what he's led led to. When he sees that they have a very true faith, when he sees that they have true love towards the other saints, and when he sees that these things must be rooted in a, in a, in a very firm hope in the gospel, he praises God for what he sees in the Colossian church. And this is something that we have to be very, um, very attentive to in our lives. We are not just to be just consumed with ourselves and to be consumed with our own progress, which you know we ought to be um, trying to progress in the faith as much as possible. But also, this is something that God does by his spirit. One of the primary works they does is produce faith, hope, and love in other Christians. And this is one of the ways that we as Christians ought to return thanks to God and worship him. And it's something as well, as Paul focuses on these three things, faith, love, and hope, that we ourselves ought to strive after in our own lives. And even when we seek to serve our brothers and sisters in, in, uh, in love, we ought to seek to produce these very things in them. We ought to seek to have faith, love, and hope be stirred up in them. And so as we look at this, uh, this particular Thanksgiving, what we're going to see is that the gospel produces faith, hope, and love in ourselves and others, and this ought to cause us to give thanksgiving to God. That is, seeing the gospel produce faith, love, and hope in yourself and others ought to cause your heart to well up in thanksgiving to God. And so we'll look at this, this text under three headings. First, in verse 3, we'll consider who it is to, to whom God gives thanks, or to whom Paul gives thanks, that is, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll see in verses 4 and 5 the reason why Paul gives thanks, and that's for faith, love, and hope. And then finally, in verses 6 to 8, we'll look at the way Paul describes the cause of faith, love, and hope, and that is the gospel. So the person to whom Paul gives thanks, the reason he gives thanks, faith, hope, and love, and then also the cause, what produces faith, love, and hope, and that is the gospel. So look with me again at verse 3 as we consider Paul's thanksgiving to God. Notice the way here that that Paul uh, addresses God. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, as I, I mentioned this, I think, I believe in the morning sermon a couple of weeks ago, um, in the, the sermon to about uh, Galatians, that this is very often the way Paul in particular speaks. He does not so much begin with stating that God is our Father, though of course that is true, he begins with the very much deeper theological point, which is that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins first with the Trinitarian relationship, that the Father is the Father of the Son from all eternity. And when we say that God is our Father, which is of course a true statement, we have to recognize that there is a relationship to uh, to the relationship between the Father and the Son in all eternity. That is to say, the only way that you as a Christian can call God your Father is because God was from eternity the Father of the Son. Now you may ask, then how could that be possible? How could it be possible that 
I could share in the relationship that the son has with the father. Well, the reason that's the case is because it's not just uh, a Trinitarian relationship that the father has with the son, but it's also an incarnational relationship. And so we see uh, these two doctrines immediately come to the fore right at the beginning as the Apostle Paul gives thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the eternal son from all eternity, but he's also the Lord Jesus Christ who became a man on our behalf. And so we call him not just the son of God as someone who is removed from us, but the one who is both the eternal Son of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became like us in every way that we might be able to call him Lord. And this is why then uh, the scriptures say that we can call God our Father because God is the Father not only of the Son from eternity, but also of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he went up into heaven, he said, now I return to my God and your God, to my father and to your father. We recognize then that this this great privilege that we have of calling God our father and coming to him as our father is not a small privilege of the gospel. Now we do, of course, have to be careful. We have to say that we're God's not our father in the exact same way that, that God is the father of the eternal son of God. We were not generated from eternity like the son. We are sons by adoption, even as the Lord Jesus Christ is a son by nature. But nevertheless, we we still must say that our calling God our Father is still rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. And if these two things were not true, we could not approach God as our Father. God is our Father because God is first the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is becomes the very characteristic way that Paul uh, gives thanks and praise to God. He focuses on that relationship, not so much our relationship to the Father, but the root and foundation of it, which is the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so as we begin here in the book of Colossians, we have to consider the great privilege that we have to be able to come to God in prayer. This is something that Paul very clearly held very dearly. He prays all throughout his letters and encourages and exhorts the Christians to whom he writes very regularly that they are to pray without ceasing, that they are always to pray for him. And we have to recognize then that this this privilege that we have to come to God in prayer, it is a blood-bought privilege. It is a privilege that we could not have except that the Father send the Son on our behalf. Even really, we could say the Old Testament saints, even though they could pray to God, even in some regards pray to God as their Father, uh, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we still would have to say that even that blessing really comes as a result of the promise of the sending of the Son. And if God were never to send the Son, then even they would not have had the blessing to be able to come to God as their father. And so it is a good encouragement to us. If you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with coming to God in prayer, you you sometimes go a, a period of time without coming to God in prayer and you realize that you should be praying more for others. You should be praying uh, more to God for the expansion of his kingdom. Or perhaps you find when, that when you pray, you have a hard time focusing, your mind wanders, and you wish that your prayer life would be better. 
one of the ways in which you can improve or seek to, to the Lord's face for improvement is to meditate on the truths which are the foundation for you to be able to pray to God. That it is without the sending of the Son, you could not have this access. And if you have this kind of access that really sets you apart from all the other people of the world, that you have a God who is so near to you that he has you have his ear whenever you call upon his name, that he hears you and that he does answer your prayers, that this is a great encouragement to pray to the Lord even as the Apostle Paul does here. And so he gives thanks, always conscious of this great Trinitarian um, this great Trinitarian basis for his prayers. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. But what is it then that Paul gives thanks to God for the, for the Colossians? What is it that he sees in their life that causes him to give thanks? Well, I've mentioned it a number of times now throughout uh, the service, and it is this great triad which, triad which we find in a number of places in the letters of the Apostle Paul, which likely will, can even be traced back to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it is the triad of faith, love, and hope said over and over again in the letters of Paul, given as a great summary of the Christian life. We have it in a number of places. Probably the most classic one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, particularly in uh, verse 3, which is also comes uh, at the beginning of another letter. We give, starting in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then perhaps the other classic place to go to uh, is the the very famous chapter on love that the Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 13, and particularly in verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And there are a number of other places that we could go. This is the classic summary of the Christian life. You know that you are doing well and that you are making progress if you find that your faith is growing, your love is growing, and your hope is growing. As one of the church fathers going all the way back to the second century said, faith is the mother of us all with hope following and love for God and our neighbor going before. So he, he pictures it as like a, a train which follows it, which follows us. Faith being surrounded by hope and love. Faith being the mother uh, of us all. Uh, as, as one commentator said, uh, the reason why this uh, is considered a summary of the entire Christian life is because it's really very, very comprehensive. Faith rests on the past. This is what he says. Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present and hope looks to the future. And that's, that's very much a good summary of faith, hope, and love. In, in faith, we look to events that happened in the past. We put our hope in God and what he's done for us in, our, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In love, we have the summation of all of our duties before him, that we are to love the Lord our God, God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's our duty for how we are to carry out our lives in the present. And then we recognize as well that in the future there is a hope which God has made secure for us, a hope which is immovable, to which we are always moving. And this is why then these three become the summary of the Christian life. 
And so Paul, as he's writing to the Colossians, a church which he had not visited, a church which he did not plant, he recognizes these three things in them. He knows from the reports that have come to him from Epaphras that this church is growing in these three things. And when he sees these things, he he recognizes this is a healthy church because they have faith, love, and hope. And when he sees these things in any Christian, it causes him to give great thanks to God. So a couple of other things we can say then about these three. First, notice in the beginning of verse 4 that faith is particularly said to be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the foundation of everything in the Christian life. I think as as uh, the, the church father Polycarp whom I quoted earlier, has said it really is the mother of us all. It's the beginning of all of the graces that God has given to us. Uh, Once he gives us faith and by faith unites us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we really have access to all of the blessings of the gospel. And notice here, the one thing that Paul decides to emphasize when, as he mentions the faith of the Colossians is the object of their faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that all of uh, all of the blessings of the gospel are really wrapped up in him. And the only reason why we can say that faith saves us, it's not so much because there's anything particularly special about faith, but it's simply because faith is the instrument that God uses to enable us to grasp Christ, in whom are all the blessings of the gospel. It's uh, one of the ways that Calvin described it in the Institutes was faith is sort of like the treasure chest. It's not the treasure itself, but it's very useful because you can hold the treasure in it. And uh, this is very much the way faith is. It's not the treasure itself, but it is the means by which we attain Christ. And when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all of his blessings. And this is what Paul recognized that the Colossians did. They had a very real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice the emphasis in love. Not just love in general, but in verse 4 it is, and of your love for all the saints. There is uh, love that we are, of course, to have towards God. But the most visible aspect of our love in this life will always be our love towards other people. Um, this is, even in the New Testament in particular, very often it's really the measure of how much we love God. If, as, as John says in his first epistle, if you cannot love your brother whom you do see, you certainly do not love God whom you cannot see. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, that God is, God is not uh, forgetful to look past uh, the the love which you have for all of his saints. And this becomes then in the in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, it is the grounds for, for him to know, the author to know that they actually do have love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God himself. If you love the brothers, this is a very sure sign that you have true love for God. And so this was the, the main thing that Epaphras surely told uh, Paul you know, they just have such a love for one another. They just have such a love for other Christians. And when Paul heard this, he rejoiced because he knew that this was a fruit of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and great evidence of their love for 
God himself. And uh, one of the commentators put it this way, in itself, this love is really only a form or manifestation of love to the divine object of their faith, for it is affection to Christ's image in the saints. So if we were to ask, why is it that there is a special love that Christians are to have for one another? Notice here that that's what Paul is talking about in verse 4. There is a, a very real sense in which we are to love every single person because every single person is made in the image of God. But there is a special love that we are to have for the saints of God. We are to love all, but we are especially to love those who are of the household of faith. And the reason is, is because when we look at other Christians, we are seeing the redeeming work of our God. And if we love the redeeming work of our God, surely then it will cause us to love those who have been remade in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what this particular commentator was was emphasizing. It is really a manifestation of love to the divine object of their faith. It is affection to Christ's image in the saints. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, as you think of the way that you you look at other uh, Christians, do you very often see this remaking of the image of God in their lives? Do you look for it? And when you see it in the lives of other Christians, does it cause you to have a greater love for them out of love for God himself? If you love the work that God has done in salvation, then you must, you must be led along to loving those for whom Christ died. You must, it's, it's simply, they simply go together. Uh, it would be um, very much like saying if you had love for God or said that you had love for God but did not have love for others, it would be like saying that you could love me and yet hate my wife or hate my family. You know, the two really go together. If you've offended my family, you have in a very real sense offended me. And one of the greatest ways that you can show love for me is by showing love to my family. I do count it as a, a great act of love towards me if you care for my children and if you care for my wife. These two things go together, and this is the way it is in the gospel as well. And Paul, when he looks at the Colossians, he saw this very thing. You have a great love for all of the saints, and it causes me to give thanks to God and always to pray for you. And then notice the third then, hope. Notice that hope is actually the grounds of the other two in uh, this verse. Because of the hope, you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a growing love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Here, hope really undergirds faith and love. Um, it is, um, it, it's very much tied to the promises of God. When, uh, when we say that we believe in the gospel, um, Calvin, I think, was right to say that our faith really has a, a very special reference to the promises of God. We recognize that there is a hope for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the basis of that hope, then, we believe in him. And in that way, we can say that hope is the grounds of faith and then becomes the grounds of love as uh, faith very often produces love. Hope, though, is often less visible. It's something that cannot be seen as readily as faith and love. And so the Apostle Paul here says, you know, that he gives thanks to uh, God for the Colossians as he sees their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their love towards all the saints, 
And he recognizes that when he sees those two things, he recognizes that it's because of a very sure hope that they have. And because of this, we can recognize that for our own lives, then, one of the ways that God grows us in our faith and grows us in our love for others is by causing us to have a clearer and clearer vision of the coming hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we grow in our being able to look past the temporality of this world into eternity, to see the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, that this causes us to grow both in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a greater strength to our faith and we have a greater love towards others. Now, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the hope which is laid up in heaven, um, we we understand that the hope is actually a hope that is found in a person, that it is the hope which is laid up in heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself at the right hand of God the Father. And these are the three things then that the Apostle Paul sees in the Colossians and that ought to be increasing in all of our lives and which you ought to always look for in your brothers and sisters in Christ. And even as you think of ways in which you can encourage your brothers and sisters, really in these three areas, these are the, this is being a summary of the entire Christian faith. These are the ways where, where you can encourage and serve your brothers and sisters, encouraging them to greater faith in Christ, encouraging them to acts of love, to bear fruit in every good work, and encouraging them to always look towards the hope which is laid up for us in heaven. Now, in verse 6, the, the Apostle Paul, and really beginning at the end of verse 5, the Apostle Paul begins to shift to a description of the gospel. And this is important because he recognizes that the gospel is the thing which produces these three things. You cannot have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love towards the saints, or hope laid up for you in heaven, unless the gospel, the word of truth, come to you. And so the Apostle Paul here goes on a bit of a tangent, uh, as he does in a number of, of places. There are usually theological tangents that have a, a great purpose. But he goes on a brief tangent to describe the great effects of the gospel, recognizing that the gospel produces faith, hope, and love. And this is, of course, very important for uh, your life, because uh, if faith, hope, and love is the summary of the Christian life, then it's, of course, very, very important for you to know how it is that God actually produces these things in your life. And Paul gives thanks for these things in the life of the Colossians because it was, in fact, the gospel which produced it in them. And it is the gospel which produces it in your life as well. So there are a number of ways that the Apostle Paul then describes the gospel. Notice at the end of verse 5, he says uh, that the, the Colossians heard of this hope which is laid up in heaven in the word of truth of the gospel. And it, it could also be translated in the word of truth, which is the gospel, which is a bit different than saying the true word. The reason why it says the word of truth is to emphasize that uh, while there may be other words spoken which are true, the word of truth, the word of the truth, the the truth which is above all other truths, is the word of the gospel. 
That though there may be other true things, there is this greater emphasis that the gospel is the word of truth. It is the highest and greatest truth. And then in verse 6, the apostle says that um, the gospel bore fruit and increased in all the world. Now here there is um, a likely allusion to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, where uh, you remember as we've been looking at this in the mornings that after God had created each of the creatures, and particularly mankind, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Here the Apostle Paul is using the same words to describing the work of the gospel, that even as man was to be fruitful and multiply on the earth, so the gospel itself was fruitful and multiplied in all the earth. And the reason I think why Paul is using this language of Genesis chapter 1 is because when God blessed mankind and told them to be fruitful and multiply, it was not just so that there would be people all over the face of the earth, that they would just grow and increase. But there was always this 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 other, and really the primary reason, uh, this other purpose, was that God would have people made in his image fill the earth to the praise of his glory. And so when Adam fell, this uh, this purpose of reproduction was in some ways thwarted. You know, there could be uh, Cain and the ungodly line could reproduce, but they're not really fulfilling the purpose that God had given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Not to the, not in, the, in, a, in any real sense, even though they were increasing and they were multiplying, the, the purpose of increasing and multiplying was that the worship of God would expand over all the earth. And this really then becomes the way in which that original purpose given in Genesis 1 is fulfilled in the world. It's, it is, in some regards, still fulfilled through uh, having children. But even when we have children, we recognize that we must teach them the word of truth, the gospel. And it is through, through this teaching of our children, the gospel, and then even more through the preaching of the gospel in church by the preached word that we have really the ultimate fulfillment of these things. It's through the preaching of the gospel that the world is filled with image bearers remade in the image of God to give him worship and praise. And there is a, another emphasis uh, in the this description of the gospel as well on the great power of the gospel. The um, the The way that Paul writes this in the Greek there's an emphasis on the gospel growing and multiplying, bearing fruit of itself. That really the power of growing and reproducing, being fruitful and multiplying, lies within the gospel itself. It's not a power outside of it, but within it. The power itself, the, the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. And it itself will always bear its own fruit when it is preached it will bear fruit and expand to the ends of the earth. Uh, it reminds us of the, the very famous phrase which Charles Spurgeon said in the 19th century, that the gospel doesn't really so much need to be defended as it needs to be let out of its cage, that there is an inherent power in the gospel and it will bear its own fruit. Now, another way, another way then that the Apostle Paul describes the gospel is that it is a universal gospel. 
The gospel is the word of truth. It bears fruit and multiplies. It has the power to do this on its own. And it also is producing fruit throughout the entire world. And this was one of the ways in which the true gospel could be distinguished from the heresies which were being preached in the church of Colossae. Uh, Very often, heresies are uh, limited to particular situations, periods of time, particular cultural interests, that sort of thing. But the gospel is very, very different. It is always true. It always has power, and it always produces fruit in all the world. As one commentator said, the true gospel, the apostle seems to say, proclaims its truth by its universality. The false gospels are the outgrowth of local circumstances, of special idiosyncrasies. The true gospel is the same everywhere. The false gospels address themselves to limited circles. The true gospel proclaims itself boldly throughout the world. Heresies are at best ethnic. Truth is essentially Catholic. Think about that. Heresies are essentially ethnic. Truth is essentially Catholic. Catholic meaning universal. Truth truth has no bounds. Truth is true for every single person in this world. And this is the way that the gospel is. And because the gospel is these things, because it has its own power, it is the word of truth, because it bears fruit and multiplies and it is universal, because of these things, it does produce faith, love, and hope. And it's not, it didn't just produce this in the entire world. It produced it for the Colossians in particular. This is to say that the gospel is not just a universal gospel, but it's even more, it's a personal gospel. It is for all people everywhere, but it's also for you in particular. And the apostle Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians that it didn't just go on and produce fruit in the whole world, but he gives thanks that it particularly produced fruit in their particular situation. The Colossians had the gospel preached to them by Epaphras, and there was a church that was planted, and in their own unique situations through the circumstances of the Lord, God produced faith, love, and hope in these believers. The The gospel is universal, but it's also, um, in some ways, has its own story for each and every person. There is a personal relationship that we have, that even I have with you as the one who preaches the word of God to you week in and week out. And that's also one of the beautiful things uh, about the gospel, that it is a thing personally received. And so as we think about all of these aspects of the gospel, all these ways that the Apostle Paul describes it, we have to recognize that uh, there is a priority that we must always make for the gospel and the work of the gospel in our lives. And the primary way, the primary place that we as a church sit under the word of God and receive it is in the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. It's through the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel week in and week out, which produces these very things which the Apostle Paul gives thanks for. And This was even, in fact, the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, prayed for in his great high priestly prayer at the end of his life. He said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Their word is truth. This is 
the the reformers were not wrong to put such great emphasis on the preaching of the word. It is the preaching of the word that produces all of these things. And because of that, the preaching of the word ought to be an incredibly high priority for you in this life. If you want to live a healthy Christian life, growing in faith, love, and hope, it is only the gospel which will produce it. And the primary exposure you have to the gospel is the preaching of it on the Lord's day. It happens in a number of circumstances and ways. It's very personal, but it happens. And when it happens, that is where these things are produced, that the Apostle Paul is so thankful to God for the Colossians. He, it was a very personal and, and very, very um, distinct circumstance that it happened for them. The Apostle Paul wasn't the one that preached. Epaphras preached. It doesn't really matter who the preacher is, but when the gospel is proclaimed with faithfulness, there it is that these things are produced. And even though we are separated from the Apostle Paul by 2,000 years, we have the same things going on. Different people preaching, but the same word being preached, the same things being produced in our lives, and the same thanksgiving being offered up to God for it. And so... This is what the Apostle Paul opens. This is the way he opens up his letter. He gives thanks to God for the work of the gospel as it produces faith, love, and hope. And this, brothers and sisters, ought to be uh, things that are always increasing in your own life. It ought to be things that you look for in the lives of others. You know, one of the ways that you can grow in, in being able to overlook the faults of others is by seeing the work of the Spirit in the life of a brother or a sister. You know, if you, can, if you can recognize the work of the God that you love in the life of another, it goes a long way for you being able to look past their faults. We all have faults. It's very, very easy to see all of them. They are not very hidden. We ought even not to try very hard to hide them. Uh, but when we, when we can see this, the work of the gospel in others, uh, this, this is what enables us to love our brothers and sisters. And these ought to be uh, things that we pursue above all else in our own lives as well. May God always grant us the grace to improve in these things, that we would always have a stronger faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might show forth our faith in him by our love to all the saints, and that we would always be grounded in the hope which is coming and laid up for us in heaven, that we might be able to endure any trials that come our way. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how thankful we are for faith, love, and hope. How thankful we are that we can see it growing in our own lives and growing in the lives of others. How thankful we are that you do this work, that you are the one who grants these things, that our faith does not come from ourselves. It comes from you, and we give you thanks for it. That our love comes from you, and we give you thanks for it. And that our hope as well comes from you, and we give you thanks for it. Lord, may all of these things always be growing in your church for the sake of the glory of your own name, that you might crown the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the growth of these graces in the lives of your people by the work of your Spirit. For we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.